Well, in a moment, uh, we're, uh, I'm going to have uh, Craig Johnson come up. He is back with us once again to speak. He was here a few months ago, as many of you remember. Uh, he is here this morning to preach once again and to bring the Word of God once again, but also in our first hour, uh, he laid out the plans for and the, uh, the core principles of Gospel Hope Church. Five months ago when Craig was here, uh, it was the North Knoxville Church Plant. Now it is Gospel Hope Church, and they have a name. They have some, uh, some elders, they have some people who are growingly uh, coming to be committed to the church, and they have some details. If you want to know more about that, I encourage you, uh, and even if you don't know one more about that, excuse me, want to know more about that, I encourage you to want to know more about that. Uh, but if you want to know more, please uh, go and get the recording from that first hour. If you weren't here, that will be up on the website or through the podcast feed shortly, uh, sometime either today or tomorrow, and listen and hear what's going on. Uh, Craig is uh, married to Tiffany, her uh, father and mother of seven children. I think all of them are with us here this morning, right? I'm sorry. Did I say seven? Did I, am I supposed to say a, a different number? It's six. Where did I give you another one from? Okay, well, you can't have one of mine, so we'll, uh, we'll just keep it at six then. Okay, so they're the parents of six children, and uh, he can, you can find out more again about him, either talking to him personally or going back or listening in the, uh, uh, to the first hour. Uh, just want to tell you about Craig before he comes up. Uh, this is uh, a man that I've had the privilege of getting to know over the past few months in particular, uh, as we've been meeting together often, and uh, I think that he, uh, I greatly appreciate two things that make for uh, someone who is uh, a faithful leader in the church. He has an unrelenting adherence to the truth of the Word of God, uh, absolute conviction of what the Scriptures are and their rule in the life of the church and of all Christians, and he has a, an extreme dedication to the people that God has placed into the church where he is to care for them. And he loves them deeply. And uh, those two things are the kind of things that you want to have in people uh, who are caring for you spiritually. So uh, I hope that you'll understand him from that background as he comes up, uh, as he comes up to bring the word of God to us. So Craig, if you would come. Good morning, beloved. It is a delight to be here with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at two verses this morning. Uh, We're going to start our reading, though, in verse 28. The text that we'll focus on for our study is verses 31 and 32. Romans chapter 8. We'll start our reading in verse 28. Uh, there were some flyers that uh, were available to, for those that were here last uh, hour at the, for Sunday school. Uh, maybe you can find one of those and pick it up, and it will give some of the dates and some of the things coming up next week. Following the service, we have a Gospel, fellowship, uh, gospel Hope Fellowship and Interest Lunch. Uh, maybe you're one that has already even been considering coming with the church plant. Uh, maybe someone that lives in that area, North Knoxville. Maybe you uh, have more questions we invite you to come to that lunch. Uh, you don't have to let us know. You can just plan on, on that for next week, right after. We'll meet at the pavilion uh, where you guys have had a church picnic in the past. And uh, food is provided. We'd love to meet you, spend time with you. You can hear more. Uh, if you have questions, of course, let me know. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 28. Uh, follow along as I read. This is, this is God's inspired word. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God's word. So Paul begins uh, this, these two verses, verses 31 and 32. He begins with the question, what then shall we say to these things? Uh, Paul likes to ask this question. He's done it multiple times uh, in this letter, letter to the church at Rome. And every time he asks this question, he's wanting his readers to reflect on what he's just said, uh, the truth that he's just explained. He wants them to step back and to draw some inferences or to, to draw some conclusions or to make some applications uh, from what he's just said. What then shall we say to these things? So who is the we? What shall, what shall we say to these things? Well, he's talking to those who are Christians. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and then uh, chapter 8, verse 39, the two bookends of this chapter, they both are speaking to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the terminology that the Apostle Paul uses. And we could talk about those who are in Christ Jesus and how they got to be in Christ Jesus from one perspective, from one angle. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So he does it. But from another vantage point, it's, it's the person, it's, it's, the, it's the man or the woman that, that has faith in Christ and the terminology is used to, to believe in Christ for salvation and it's really believe into Christ. And so he's talking to those who have believed into Christ Jesus. These are ones who are hiding themselves in Christ in order to escape the judging wrath of God. They know they are sinners and they know that Christ is their only hope. And so they have fled to him, and they have run into Christ. Just like Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so he's talking to Christians. What then shall we say to these things? So what things does Paul have in mind? Certainly he has in mind what he's just been talking about. And we read that context, the near context. In verse 28, he says, everything works together for our good. So now Paul's asking, what do we say? What are some inferences that we can draw about that? What conclusions should we come to? Uh, what shall we say to the fact that God has foreknown us? As those who have believed into Christ, well, we know this truth. God foreknew us before the foundation of the world, before all things were created. He knew me. He had chosen to, to know me and to love me. Way before I chose to love him. Apostle Paul says that he predestined us. He determined our destiny beforehand. He determined that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That we would uh, uh, be conformed when it comes to our character. Conformed to the image of Christ. But even more than that, as he's explained in this chapter, one day, even bodily, we'll have a, a new body that is likened to his resurrected body. And, and this is because he has predestined that these things will be true for us. 
More than that, he says, we've been called. He's called us with his strong voice. He has said to us, he has said to us come forth. Just like Jesus said to Lazarus, dead in the grave. Lazarus, come forth. So he says it to our dead souls. He called us. And Paul says that he justified us as the judge of the universe. He has declared us not guilty in spite of all of our crimes against him. And he does that on account of Christ's substitutionary death in our place. And then, of course, Paul says that he is giving us glory. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3, we're changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And it's a process that will culminate at the return of Christ when we are fully glorified together with Christ. And so now Paul, after, after explaining these truths to us, he asks this question, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the gospel? The good news concerning Jesus Christ and salvation in him. He wants us to take those gospel truths and to reason from those things, to draw conclusions from those gospel certainties. Now, this idea of drawing inferences and drawing conclusions, this is something that we do all the time. Maybe you even did it this morning when you, when you showed up to, for, for corporate worship. Uh, maybe you greeted somebody and you said, you said hi, and the other person, though, seemed, a little bit, seemed to have a little bit of a cold response to you. And, and then he walked away, and you started to think about that. You started to ask questions in your mind. I, I wonder what's going on with him, that he would respond that way. I wonder if he's, maybe he's not feeling well. Or, and then you think, well, did I say something wrong? And then maybe, oh, it occurs to you, oh, last week he said that this week was going to be really difficult for him, and he probably was disappointed that I didn't even comment on that. I didn't call him this week, I didn't email him, and then when I, I just greeted him, I never said anything about it. And so he's probably really disappointed in me because I, I forgot all about that. But, and then you think, but, but, but he, has, he has no idea whether or not I actually remembered how, you know, this, this concern he had last week. I could have said hi without asking him. That would have been totally fine. There's no reason why he should jump to that kind of conclusion. Right? And we start to, we just, our mind goes, right? We start to analyze these conversations and we're drawing inferences and conclusions. We're good at doing this, aren't we? Actually, we're not so good at it. We do it all the time, but we're not very good at it. Uh, one of the big problems that we have is that we, is that we have the wrong starting point so often. But we do this. We do it in times of pressure especially. And we especially do it in times of suffering. And we so often in those times have the wrong starting point. We reason from things that are not certain. We look at our circumstances and our mind just takes off. And we're miserable because of it. Imagine what it would be like for us to go to the gospel, uh, to go to the gospel, to go to the certainties of the gospel, and to reason from those truths. Imagine what it would be like to have our perspective shaped by the certainties of the gospel in every situation. Well, Paul is going to help us to do just that. And if we can just track with him, he asks the question. He gives the certainty of the gospel and then he reasons from that. If we can just track with him, 
then what we know will happen is the Holy Spirit who's inspired this text is going to be renewing our minds. So this morning we want to look at two gospel certainties. That's what this text gives us. Two gospel certainties and then two necessary conclusions that teach us how to reason from the gospel to assurance of security for our day-to-day. That's Paul's goal. He knows that we live in a topsy-turvy world. There's suffering. We're dealing with sin. It's, it's hard. And so he's trying to persuade us of the security that we have as Christians. And so to give us that security, he's got to teach us the gospel and teach us how to reason from the gospel. Christians do have security. They are secure. They are safe. But sometimes they don't have assurance of that. They're not convinced of this. And how do we know they're not convinced? They're not, they don't have that assurance? Well, you see it in their angst. You see it in their anxiety. You see it in their explosive anger. You see it in their bitterness. You see it in their despair. When you experience angst, you know that there are a whole bunch of inferences that you are making. You are drawing conclusions about about things. But all of that angst is generated because you're reasoning from the wrong starting point. So let's look at the first gospel certainty. The first gospel certainty that Paul gives us, he says that God is for us. God is for us. Verse 31, look at the text again. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us. Now, he, he isn't calling that into question. No, the whole, the whole sentence is the question, right? That's the given at the beginning. That's the certainty. God is for us, right? God, God is for me. He, what, what does that mean? It means that he's on my side. He's not against me. It means that he loves me. And he is seeking my good. He is for me. Are you certain of that? Are you convinced of that truth? That God is for you? Can you say that with confidence? How can a person be certain of this? How do I know? How do I know that God is for me? Well, there's a couple wrong answers that we might give. Someone might say, I just, feel, I just feel like everything works out. Everything's just going to work out. I just feel like that's, that's the way it is. Well, what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, I think helps us. Look back at verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So there's a couple conditions, right? For those who love God. And for those who are called according to his purpose. So Romans 8.28 is clear. Things do not work out for everyone's good. But for those only that love God and who are called according to his purpose. So you don't want to go by your feelings. Uh, how can we be certain that God is for us? Wrong answer number two. Uh, someone might say, well, God is, God is prospering my life. I'm successful. I see that, that he's just making everything fall into place. And so I know, therefore, that God is for me. The problem with that answer is 
Well, so much teaching in Scripture that is maybe summarized by the words of Job in the book of Job when he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, you may be persuaded that he is for you when the Lord gives, but what will happen when the Lord takes away? And he will do that. That's what Job says. This is the teaching of Scripture. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. What will happen when he does take away? Well, then your confidence will crumble, won't it? You can't base your confidence that God is for you by just looking at your circumstances. So how can we be certain that God is for us? Well, this is really uh, something that's taught throughout this whole letter. The whole letter teaches this. The first three chapters of of this letter to the Romans, the first three chapters explain to us that the whole world opposes God and that God in his holiness is against them because of that, right? So God's not for them, he's against them because they are in opposition to him. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul is saying there that God is angry with the world because in their unrighteousness, they take truth about God that he has revealed to them in creation and he's made known to them and they have inner recognition of this. They take that truth and they suppress it. They hold it down. They resist it. And you can see it because they don't give thanks to God. He's given them everything, life and breath and everything that they have He's so generous. And and what do they do? They don't give thanks. They're thankless people. And and not only that, Paul says that they worship everything except for God. They take his good gifts and they ignore him and they cling to those things and they love those things and they forget the one who gave it to them. They make idols out of everything. Chapter 2 and verse 5 Apostle Paul says they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed as they receive his good gifts and then ignore him and resist him. They're storing up wrath. Well, Apostle Paul in chapter 3 kind of cinches the argument and he quotes from a number of texts from the Old Testament and and he makes some strong points. He says, there is none righteous. No one does good he says. No one seeks after God, and there is no fear of God. And so, Paul says, God in his righteousness and his holiness is against them. He is against them. But then we come to chapter 5, and there in chapter 5, the clouds part. The sun, the rays of God's love come, come pouring in, and he makes this statement about We who have been reconciled to God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, God shows his love for us. For us who have been justified by faith, he shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's, then 
those, those that should have confidence and can have confidence that God is for them, those are the ones that have been reconciled to God. And how do they come to be uh, at peace with God and reconciled? Well, God has justified them. The judge of the universe has declared them not guilty in the eyes of his law. Why did he do that? Well, he did that for those that had faith, who rely on Jesus Christ to save them. It's those that understand the gospel and run to Christ and love him and trust him. Those are the ones that are at peace with God. Those are the ones that can know that God is not against them, but that he is for them. Well, Romans 8 then adds even more reason for us to be persuaded that God is for us. God is so for me that he foreknew me before the foundation of the world. He loved me way before I loved him. For centuries and for millennia, he has been loving me. Imagine that. He's been tracing me. He's been tracking me down for centuries with a love, a pursuing love. Yes, he's for me. I know that. And he predestined me. He determined my destiny a long time ago. He is determined to bless me. And that's why I believe right now. That's why I love him. And he called me. And he justified me. And he's giving me glory. All of these things make me certain, make me confident that he is for me. The God who is sovereign over all has chosen to love me. But, but then where does that leave the one who thinks about God's sovereignty and his predestination and then thinks, what if I'm not chosen? What if I am not the one that's been predestined and foreknown? What should that person do? I would say that he seems to be believing the statements about God's sovereignty. But he needs to believe all of what God says. God says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He needs to believe that as well. He needs to believe what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4 verse 5. To the one who does not work who doesn't try and earn his salvation, that's what he's talking about, to the one who does not work but, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you believe in him, if you rely on him who justifies ungodly ones on the basis of what Jesus has done at the cross, if you believe in him and rely on him, then you will be saved. You need to believe that too. But Paul says more about this faith, and that's key. In chapter 1 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, he talks about the goal of all of his gospel ministry, all of his gospel proclamation. His goal is, that the target is the obedience of faith. That's the terminology he uses, obedience of faith. He's, he's shooting for, when he proclaims the gospel, what he wants to see in people is an obedient faith. An obedient faith. It's a faith that recognizes the lordship of Jesus and submits to him. Doesn't just agree with certain facts, 
but submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. That's why he can save you. He's the one true God. He's the one who's, who's Lord over all. He's the king. And so a faith that trusts him for salvation must be a faith that submits to him as Lord. There's no perfect submission, of course. And there's no perfect faith. And so it's a faith that, that, that won't allow us to continue in sin, but instead a faith that, that drives us to always be confessing and turning from sin. It's not a perfect faith, but it's a genuine faith. There's a genuine submission to Jesus. If you're here this morning and, and you're one who, who is continuing in sin, you know that you are living in defiance to God. And if, you, and if it does not grieve you to be in that sin, then watch out, friend. Beware. Don't be deceived. Will you rely on Jesus Christ? Will you rely on Jesus Christ to save you? Will you submit to him as your king? When you do, you can be certain that he is for you, that he foreknew you, that he predestined you, that he justified you, and that he will glorify you. And as you do battle against your sin, you know that he is for you. That's the gospel certainty. And now we come to the first necessary conclusion. Look at the necessary conclusion. It's, it's this, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the conclusion. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I, I love that he, he still words it as a question. Sometimes the best way of making a point strongly and emphatically is to word it as a question. It's like he requires all of us to give a response. And we all know the answer, but he, it's almost like he states it more strongly because he words it as a question. We want to rise up and go, yes. Who can be against us? No one. Nothing. Right? That's the question. Or that's the answer that he wants us all to, to shout. Who can be against us? What opposition can there be? Maybe you say, no, wait a minute. Of course there is opposition. I mean, I know for a fact there are people who oppose me. And I have a strong suspicion that Satan is opposed to me. So what does Paul mean when he says this? Who can be against us? We know Paul isn't saying we won't face any opposition. I mean, we know even from this chapter, he describes, uh, you know, verse 35, he talks about how we'll experience tribulation uh, and persecution and, and danger and sword. And then he quotes an Old Testament saint in verse 36 who says, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul knows that we as Christians, we face opposition. So what then is Paul saying when he asks this question, who can be against us? Well, I think there are three assurances that are built into this 
who can be against us? Number one, God's power is infinitely greater than all else. That's what he's saying. God's power is infinitely greater than all else. So who can be against us? So it's a statement about God's power. And, and the answer is no one of any account can be against us. Because God is the sovereign. He is powerful. He's almighty. And Paul, when he, when he says this, is really demeaning all other sources of opposition. If God is for us, who could be against us? The only opposition is puny opposition. If Almighty God is for us. And you remember that awesome statement in Isaiah chapter 40 where it says, All the nations are like a, a drop in the bucket, like, like dust on the scales. And so Yahweh, without, without effort, just blows all the nations away like dust. And so I, th- I, I think Paul here is saying essentially what the psalmist said in Psalm 56.4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So let me ask you a question. What if all men and all angels and all demons and all creation was for you, but God was against you? Where would that leave you? Where would you be? You can see at once that God outweighs all opposition. Now, what if all men and all creation were against you? But God was for you. Then where would you be? Martin Luther, in April of 1521, was ordered to attend the Diet of Worms. He was going to be examined by the Roman Catholic Church and called to recant his profession of the gospel. And he saw it as an invitation to death. Many of his friends told him, don't do it. Don't go there. But he insisted on going. He said, if there be as many devils as there are red tiles on the roofs of the houses and worms, I will still go. Now, how can he do that? You know why he can do that. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And so this is a statement of God's power and how it's infinitely greater than all else. But there's a second assurance built into to, uh, Paul's words here. No one can succeed in their opposition to us. No one can succeed in their opposition to us. So it's not just a statement about their ability, but he's saying that no one can succeed. And this is essentially the point of Isaiah 54, verse 17. Yahweh says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And then third, third assurance built into this, anything against us will be turned by God into something that is for us. Anything against us will be turned by God into something that is for us. That's the point of Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for our good. The best of things, the worst of things, 
including even sin that's done against us. It's all being synthesized by God into something that is truly good for us. And so Paul can say, if God is for us and turns all things into good for us, then who can be against us? And the gospel story centers on this very reality. All that was done to Jesus was turned to good for us. They nail Jesus to the cross. God uses it for my good. Once nailed on the cross, a man with anger and ridicule walks up to Jesus and and spits in his face with as much scorn as he can muster. God uses it for my good. Every act of hatred and evil against Jesus, every act is like another brick that God uses to build a great monument to his own glory. It displays God's patience towards sinners. It displays God's love. It displays God's mercy. It displays God's wrath and God's holiness. You think you can oppose what God is doing? You can't do anything. No. God will use everything for our good. Everything that is on the face of things against us is, on another level, for us. Because of God's infinite power, no opposition can prosper, but will instead be used by God to do good to me. Everything must bow to God's gospel purposes for you. If you say, yes, God is for me, then what are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? You have to draw the necessary conclusion from the certainty of the gospel. You must ask yourself, do do I believe that? That God is for me. That there is no power on earth or in hell that can stand against the power of God. This is the basis on which we can face the future with total confidence. Total confidence. There is so much pain. There are so many setbacks and so many pressures. I don't know where I would turn if I did not believe that God is taking every bit of pain and every single setback and every pressure and removing its destructive power and using it as an instrument to change me and to perfect me so that I will find my joy and satisfaction in God alone. If God is for you, who can be against you. Satan does not have the upper hand in your life. People in your life don't have the upper hand. What shall we say to these things? Make sure that what you say in response to your circumstances is always in keeping with this truth. And watch out, sometimes we say things in our hearts. We don't actually say them out loud. Somehow we think it's okay to keep saying those things in our hearts. Things that contradict this gospel certainty. But it's not okay to say those things in your heart. My life is miserable. I am doomed 
They have ruined my life. If they do that thing, that will destroy me. I will never be able to recover from that. No, Christian. Before the earth was created, God set his love upon you. He determined your destiny. He called you. He justified you. He will accomplish what is good for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? So dear brother or sister, you must track down all those unbelieving thoughts, all those rebel thoughts, and take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. Let everything you say in your heart be molded and shaped by this truth. I do want to say the only exception to all of this is a holy use of sarcasm. I'd like to commend to you the use of holy sarcasm. Our family, many of you know, experienced some significant suffering over the last year. And I use sarcasm as a tool for my own sake, for my wife's sake, and for the sake of my precious children. When, when we were experiencing something pleasant together, maybe we went out to eat, we're enjoying some food together, I would say, finally, something is going our way. Right? And they would look at me, and they didn't know how to answer that. <laughs> right? And we'd all remember, no, that's stupid. Everything is going our way. Everything. Not just this pleasant experience. Every last thing. Let's look at the second gospel certainty. God delivered up his son for us. God delivered up his son for us. Look with me at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is the extreme demonstration of God's love for you. And there are three aspects to note here. And as you take note of these three aspects of what Paul says, it will help you to see how extreme his love for you is. First, note the unique relationship between the Father and the Son that the Apostle Paul highlights. Paul does not say God delivered up Jesus. He speaks of Jesus as the Son to show the relationship. But he says more. He describes him as his own Son. He stands in a unique relationship to the Father. And then there's another word that's left untranslated in, in nearly every translation I could find. The word even. He did not spare even his own Son. Who can understand how much the Father loves his only Son? 
The giving of his son is the greatest thing that the father of glory could ever do. There could never be another gift that is more costly. That's because there's no treasure in the universe that could compare. So note the unique relationship. Second aspect to note here, and this is a negative one, Paul says about this unique son that God did not spare him. Did not spare him. The word spare is to keep someone from trouble. To spare him from suffering. God the Father did not spare his own son. He could have kept his son, the one in whom he delights. He could have kept him from suffering. But he did not spare his own son. And he did not spare the son who specifically asked that if it would be possible, that he would be spared. Isn't that what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, please, if it's possible, spare me from this suffering. And he said it again and again, as the gospel writers tell us. Again and again, Father, please, please, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Please, Father, if it's possible, spare me this suffering. Jesus must pray that prayer. He would be unholy if he did not want that. How could he not? He has always known the pleasure of his father's smile upon him. From eternity, he has known it. He has known that sweet intimacy of fellowship with his father in heaven. And now he says, oh, father, I don't want, to have, I don't want you to turn your face from me. Spare me from that. Nothing could ever be so painful. And yet, while he makes the request, he yields his will to his Father. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And so as our Lord Jesus screams out to the Father in the garden, all of heaven holds its breath. What will the Father do? Will the father spare his own son? Do you realize that this is the one obstacle that would keep you from fellowship with God? We could say that our sin is an obstacle that keeps us from fellowship with God. That's true. We could say that it is, it is the father's wrath that keeps us from fellowship with God. That's true. But in another sense, we could say it is ultimately the father's desire to spare his son from unspeakable horror. That's the one thing that could that could ruin it all. And, and we wouldn't be surprised. Because there has never been a father who has loved his son like this. But now, for our salvation, he must choose to not spare his son. And he must make that choice in the face of the sons screaming out to him. It's overwhelming. But the scriptures tell us that he did not withhold one stroke of the judgment that was due the sin as he dealt with his only son as the substitute for sinners. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die 
I scarce can take it in. Then sings my soul. A third aspect. This is a positive one. Apostle Paul says he gave him up for us all. Jesus was delivered up. He was delivered up. We read this language as it's used to speak of Christ's crucifixion again and again. Judas delivered up Jesus. Pilate, the high priest, all the people delivered up Jesus, the scripture writers tell us. Paul wants us to know, though, that ultimately it was God that delivered up his son. They all had their own motives. Judas delivered him up out of covetousness and treachery. Pilate delivered him out of weakness and fear. The high priest delivered him out of jealousy and envy. The people delivered him out of ignorance and stupidity. God delivered him up out of an infinite love for sinners. This is the ultimate reason Jesus came to his death on the cross. It wasn't because all those people handed him over. The ultimate reason he came to death was because the Father handed him over. It wasn't that wicked men have taken Jesus and and God says, I'll forgive him. No, it's that God was in this delivering his son over. And this is delivering over is judicial. The father is delivering him up to a judicial death so that Jesus is incurring the just deserts of a legal punishment. We deserve to be handed over to our sin and to his wrath, but God gave him up for us all. And that word for is instead of, in place of. God gave him up instead of us all. Giving him up is a word of sacrifice. It's not just judicial, it's a word of sacrifice. Used of Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. God said, because you have not withheld your son, but have given him up. It's a word that speaks of sacrifice and abandonment. One couple spoke of their only son who was going off to a faraway place to make disciples, going out for the Great Commission. As the couple talked about their son, they talked about how he was a guy that just had everything. They spoke of his intellectual abilities. He was brilliant, surpassing his peers, outstanding in every sport, everything he played. And they, they went on to talk about how much they loved him and how they respected him. And, and then they made this statement. They said, it's so hard to give him up to a life like that. Think of what the father of our Lord gave up his only son to. He gave him up. He gave up his son to be nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal being butchered and hung up on a rack. He gave up his son to the abandonment and defilement of bearing all of our transgressions. He gave him up to be cast out from among men, cast off from the very presence of God, taken away into an experience of infinite sorrow and agony and loneliness on the cross under the curse of God. I wonder if we can understand what it meant for him to give up his own son for us all. Do you see how that was the greatest obstacle to your fellowship with God? Would the father give up his greatest treasure, his darling son, to that? 
What do you do that? Well, he did it. He did not spare him. He did not spare him that suffering. He delivered him over to judgment. And he did that for you. And if he did that for you, is there anything good that he would withhold from you? That's where Paul goes with his second, the second necessary conclusion. Will he not give us all things? Will he not give us all things? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know this kind of reasoning. You save up a bunch of money to go on vacation to Disney World. You buy plane tickets. You buy uh, seven or so nights in a hotel. You buy meal after meal just to get to Disney. And then... As you're approaching the park, you see that you have to pay a $10 parking fee. And what do you say? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so, honey. We're going home. Right? What does she say? Are you kidding me? We didn't spend all that money on plane tickets and hotels and meals only to turn back because of a measly $10 parking fee. If the father has not spared his own darling son. Do you think he would stop now in giving you what is good? You might not find any evidence in your circumstances that God loves you or that he is for you. It might seem to you that there is no evidence of any warm rays of God's love that would ever even peek through the clouds and it might seem to be completely dark. And you might think that God is not giving you something that you really need. You will have to take your heart back to Gethsemane and back to Calvary and say to yourself, look, he hasn't given up his son only so that he can leave you to yourself now. Will he not give you all things? Paul holds up the scenario where God withholds something good from you. He holds up the, the idea to, to ridicule. It's preposterous. It's so stupid. The idea that God would give up his son to suffer, to rescue you, and then he'd come along and withhold something good from you? How could he ever entertain that as a possibility? It's, it's ludicrous. It could never be. If you have grasped the, the, the giving of God and and the gift of his son, then you know that he would never withhold anything good from you. He will give you all things. That's the, that's the assurance. What things? All the money I want? The good health that I so long for? The fulfillment of every desire we have? Success in our career? No. He will not make you a self-centered, petulant child that forgets about him. And it's amazing how easily we can fall into that trap, thinking that we must have a particular thing. And if God doesn't give that to us, then he's not good or he's not faithful. 
He must give me that certain set of circumstances. No, he will give us all the things that are necessary to do the things he says this text says he will do. Everything that's necessary to get you to the end. Everything we need to be conformed to Christ. Everything we need to persevere to glory. Everything we need to have eternal joy in God. All things that you truly need. You say, I've asked for God to bring back my wayward child. I've asked for him to give me a spouse that truly loves me. I've asked for an income that will at least pay the bills. I've asked for friends. Just, I've asked for at least one friend. We all know what it's like for us to want things and ask for things and then for God to withhold those things from us. How do you deal with the fact that God withholds? Well, you can know that it is not ultimately in your best interest for you to have that thing that he withholds. In fact, in those cases, the withholding of that thing, the withholding of that thing is the gift itself. And he will give you all things that you need. If we always had what we wanted, we would destroy ourselves. Sometimes the worst thing that could happen to us is we would get what we want. And so we must trust his wisdom. There's not one material thing that you will ever need that you will not also receive from God if it really does bring him glory and if it really is for your good. There is nothing that your soul needs that God will not fully supply because he has supplied in his son the greater and most glorious gift. Now you can be sure that Satan will come along just like he did with Adam and Eve and he will say to you, God is denying you that? Are you serious? Obviously, he's not for you. He's against you. You can't trust him. You're going to have to go and take that for yourself. But you'll know how to answer Satan's lie. God did not spare his only son. Everything else is small compared to the value of God's son. He didn't spare his own son, so why would he withhold any other particular thing that I need? His love for me is beyond question. His commitment to me is beyond question. God gave his son for us. But Paul says something more. He gave his son to us. The wording is very precise here. Look at verse 32 again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he gives us his son, and with him he gives us all things. What that means is that he won't give you things that would result in you ultimately loving things more than Christ. Because the supreme gift is giving you the gift of his son. He may deprive you of certain things then in order that you might more and more see that you have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. We must say to ourselves, I have Christ. What more do I want? What more could I ever need? All the things that God gives you, including the withholding of other things, all the things he gives you are given to you that you might see what you have in Christ, that you might see that he is the great treasure, that your joy might be in him. 
Do you see that God intends to bring you to that very conclusion? God is for us. Who can be against us? He delivered up even his own son for us. How will he not also, together with Christ, graciously give us all things? Make sure that everything that you say with your lips or even in your heart, make sure everything that you say is in keeping with these truths. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this for these gospel certainties. Seems too good to be true that you would love us like this. Thank you for the confidence that we have from your word that you are for us. And so we are forever blessed. May we learn to reason from the truth of the gospel and to interpret our circumstances in light of the certainties of the gospel. And in that way, honor you and honor your son and your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.